Welcome to Web3 for Gen Z. I'm your host Aryan and my guest for this week is Graham Boy. Graham is the co-founder and CTO of Mirror, a Web3 platform that is redefining the landscape for writing, crowdfunding, and a lot more. Before co-founding Mirror in 2021, Graham was the founding engineer at RaceMe and the director of engineering at Tharma, a DeFi protocol that was acquired by OpenSea in 2022. You can follow Graham on Twitter at Strange Chances. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the show, Graham. Hi, thank you. I would love to start by talking about an article that you wrote six years ago called Your Career is a Startup, What Every Recent Grad Needs to Know. And I think it's relevant because I myself am a recent grad. The big piece of advice that I was reading on the article was to communicate better and build a personal brand. There was a quote there that said the trajectory of your career depends on the quality of your communication. So I'm curious to ask you, what were some habits or tactics that you used to improve the quality of your communication, whether verbal or written? Well, okay. Well, I have to tell you that article is a bit of a cliff notes for a longer book by Reid Hoffman called The Startup of You that came out around a similar time that I was reading. And then I was asked by a computer science professor at my college to give a talk to the students there about their careers. And they were like third years or something and working really hard and they were really tired and all checked out. And I was like, really peppy. And I was like, your uh, career is a startup and you've got to think about the marketing of it. And you've got to think about the talent that you're building inside of this startup and how you communicate that to the world and how you frame it to people. And I think that online, you know, social media has given a platform for people to communicate their skill sets. All of the connections in Web3 happen on Twitter. So people reach out on DMs and that's how they get jobs. That's how I met Dennis and that's how we co-founded uh, Mira. Um, that's probably how I got in touch with the Dharma people early on at the startup I was at previously. A lot of stuff happens on Twitter and it's also just where you demonstrate a lot of your knowledge. So people who write threads on things, I know that's a little cringe these days, but just being able to communicate technical concepts on Twitter is incredibly important and valuable because a lot of people are watching, even if they don't follow you, they get to see it because somebody likes it or it's just relevant to their feed. People get to see it and they read it and it's just advertising for your personal brand. And I think that would be really good advice still for people who are entering the job market, just to continue to use these social media platforms to build up marketing for your skill set. And also networking, meeting people through that. It's probably the best way to network right now. How would you recommend people to improve communication or work on Twitter to not be one of those people who is just posting threads upon threads? Well, caveat would be that I only know Twitter because I'm a little bit older. It does seem that Twitter is where a lot of the more serious people are. People in the VC space that you might want funding for one day or founders and CEOs, those people, they do tend to be on Twitter. And I think the content is a little bit more thoughtful. So that's still probably where I would target. And then I wouldn't worry about being cringe with the threads or something. Nobody's going to remember that in a year or two years that you are posting a bunch of threads. I think it's just more important to develop the skills to just think of those as practice, right? So you're just getting in these repetitions where you're trying to communicate technical concepts to a broader audience and some of them will hit and some of them won't. And that's how you'll learn what you're doing well and where you're like probably being either too technical or, you know, not being clear enough. And I think that just doing that is valuable because you'll have to learn a lot of concepts in order to communicate in that way, which will help you when you're doing like technical interviews and the interviewer will ask you, okay, explain how this front-end framework works. 
and maybe you'll have written about it and you'll just be good at explaining concepts. I think it's very important that will definitely set you apart from other people who are also interviewing who just haven't had that practice or don't get that exposure. I think I remember that one of the first jobs that you had landed, communication played a part there because you had already written about a topic that the company was either brainstorming or thinking about. Writing is the chance to get it right. Whereas like in an interview, sometimes somebody will ask you a question just like we're doing now, but in a technical interview, you might not word it perfectly. So they might ask you some technical concept and it really helps if you've taken the, the time to write it out or something beforehand and think through it. In that particular case, I believe it was something like this. All of the startups at the time were trying to think about moving to microservices from the monolith architecture or something like that. And there were a couple of books written about it. And I had gone and read a couple of those books and I had thought through the topic and I had expressed an opinion. Um, maybe it was a contrarian opinion, like, no, you shouldn't take your monolith app and break it down into microservices unless you're at a certain scale. And then when the company interviewed me that maybe read that and they said, you know, this is something we were actually thinking about doing and what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And that's how we know maybe you could be a senior engineer because you can think through these architectural topics. Those sorts of things are amazing because if somebody stumbles upon them, they can really get a sense of the way that you think about things and they can see how that fits into the company. And just visualizing that probably gets you a head start on your competition, like when you're interviewing with these companies. This is a good segue into my next question. When you were working at Raise Me, you interviewed probably hundreds of candidates. For listeners out there who might be interviewing two companies in the future, what mistakes would you recommend to avoid or advice you would give that set out the best 1% of candidates? When you're actually interviewing, like in the moment, there's like a lot of performance pressure. There's a lot of preparation that you can do beforehand. It's just like when you're going to school and you're doing the SATs and stuff, you just want to do as much preparation as you can before. Obvious things to do would be interview at a lot of places and get experience interviewing. And then when you're doing those practice interviews, ask for feedback, say, what could I have done better? And don't worry about getting rejected and just try interview at a lot of different places. Try and understand their team and how their team works and try and see how you might fit into their team. You always have to have the frame that you're also interviewing the company. It's not just one way. I think that that'll go a long way because it shows like a real sort of interest in the company. Companies tend to like that and people sometimes miss that when they're interviewing. They don't really express a lot of interest in the company. So an example would be actually using the product that you're interviewing for. So if you come and interview at Mirror, like if you haven't set up a Mirror blog, it just shows that maybe you didn't take it that seriously as a potential company. Especially for Web3, I think it's pretty important to make sure you've used the product before you actually interviewing at the company. I think that that goes hand in hand with taking yourself seriously as a candidate. So if you really consider yourself and your skill set to be very valuable and you go into an interview and you think that you might have a shot at joining the company, I would hope at that point that you really care about the product and you think it's something that you'd like to spend two years working on, two of your maybe like most energetic years of your early 20s. I think the problem that I've noticed from people in the early 20s when they're interviewing is it almost feels like a second job. So you have to strike a fine balance where you're applying to many places, but you're also applying to places with products you understand and with people that you would enjoy working with. Everybody's different. I applied early decision for college and then got accepted and went. And then I applied only to like three companies or something when I was doing my first job at school. And then I've always been on the founding team 
of companies. So my particular way of thinking about something is quite radically in line with just high conviction when I understand the company like really well and then start building relationships with the people there and like, you know, join. So I don't take the approach of like interviewing at a lot of places and that sort of thing. But I do think that is still good advice if you want to be good at interviewing. And if you're looking at applying to, let's say, a few companies, if you want to follow your approach, how would you actually select two or three places? So the most important thing, I think, early in somebody's career is to know what skills the person wants to develop and find a place where they can really work on those specific skills. And then combine that, hopefully, with a place that the people that they're going to work with are people that they would like to become more like. So you're going to be spending a lot, many, many hours every single day with the people at the company that you are joining. And hopefully those will end up being lifelong friends as well. So you want to pick companies that have people that you really respect and admire. First is like your skills, find a place where you can get the best skill sets. And then the second people that you want to be around. So those are the things that I would optimize for first and foremost. I think secondary would be the sector or the industry or something like that. I think that is important too, but I would say that that is more important later in somebody's career, not necessarily in the beginning, because at the beginning, you're kind of forming your skill sets and your personality in the workplace. And so you want to model that on people who are who you already respect and you want to maximize your skill acquisition. So I wouldn't worry too much about the sector. Um, if that makes sense, as long as you can get the skills that you want to. So if you want to learn like machine learning, you don't necessarily have to optimize for being in the machine learning industry, as long as you can do it somewhere that is reasonably good, build up your skill set, get some good recommendations. And then from there, you can shift to wherever you want to following that. One philosophy that I've heard that's pretty similar to what you're saying is when you're looking at two companies and picking between the two, just look up the people who are in senior positions at each of those companies and see which of those people would you rather be more like because that's a reflection of who you're going to be in a few years from now. It's an empirical question. I suppose you could go and see if that bears out. I would say it's probably very important because even if you join a small company, the leaders will hire people who are like them. And if you're going to be in a place for two years and around a specific culture, that will shape your personality, shape what you think about, the kind of media that you probably consume through the Slack channels and that stuff. And then the way that you express yourself will become modeled on like the leadership in the company and the way that they present themselves in all hands, things like that. Well, I would love to shift gears a little bit and talk a bit more about Mirror because I think that's also super exciting. I want to start by talking about incentive models. I think the publishing industry has all sorts of incentive models that incentivize writers to write. For example, the New York Times is paying journalists and Medium uses an algorithm to give out a portion of its revenue to writers and Substack lets you create your own base of subscriptions. So comparing these different models, how would you explain Mirror's incentive model to the listeners and why it might be better than other ones? At the moment, Mirror is experimenting or working on a concept called writing NFTs. So writing NFTs, as you can imagine from the name, is a way to mint an NFT from a piece of writing. So for example, if you go to my blog, g.mirror.xyz, my latest article is called Write to Learn. Now, you can mint an NFT of that or you can purchase an NFT of that article, which sort of makes you a collector of a piece of writing. And collection is this sort of new social gesture in Web3. 
And I think of it as being a progression from the web two model of liking and resharing things. So resharing is like retweeting and liking, which is feeding the algorithm with something, some data that I enjoyed this piece of writing or I enjoyed this tweet or photo. Collection is a little bit more, it's got this economic aspects. It's got a new dimension to it. It's also entails ownership. So when you go into foundation and you see an artwork that you like, instead of clicking a like button or a heart button, you can actually collect it. It's almost like being an art collector in the private art collecting world. But instead of there being some sort of like gallery or dealer that you're working with, you're just buying it directly from the creator. So there's this very tight relationship between the creator and the collector. And that is being expressed through Web3. And we tend to think that this is very interesting for communities and for what you might think of as fandom or something like that. We sort of have had this influencer culture in social media where they sort of are dependent on these platforms like Instagram or something to build up a big audience. And then they put adverts and that sort of thing to monetize. Now there's this direct relationship between the collector and the creator, or like the fan and the creator. And it's much easier to get started because you can just mint these things on blockchains and all you need is an Ethereum address. And we sort of see something interesting happening there. And so that model has yet to play out fully. I mean, we've had one cycle of NFTs and it like had a bubble. But it wasn't like fully expressed because the blockchains didn't scale properly and only a couple of people were already doing it and they were doing it in these like very like specific contrived ways of making profile picture photos and that, that sort of thing. But I think for the next cycle, we'll see many more expressions of, you know, artworks, whether they're music, writing or photos or digital images that get expressed as NFTs and people will collect them. And then that will create this interesting relationship between the collector and the creator. And maybe that's just a new form of like social experience. How does that compare to the traditional writing models to get back to the question? I think it, it allows you not to have a gated content for one. Typically the model would be, you need to subscribe and pay a subscription fee of like five to $15 a month or something. And then you get access to this content. And then the creators like on this treadmill where they have to just produce content every week because they have these this subscriber base that they need to cater to and they become media companies with a subscription model. NFTs work really differently because you're just selling an artifact of something that somebody really likes and they want to collect, they want to own it. So if it's a beautiful photo, they say, I would want to own that and, and put it in my house or something. And maybe they pay $10,000 for like an image or something that they would typically just put in their house and it's private and only like 10 people would ever come to their house and see, but now they get to own it and put it on their social media profile and it's all verified. And then millions of people can see that you're the owner and Maybe you have a lot of pride in that and you get to present yourself on the internet as identity. It's just a whole kind of new world um, that people can be part of. And it just doesn't require gating the content. So I think it, it makes the content more open, but people can still pay for the content. There's a quote from an article that you wrote that I think very neatly captures the difference between interacting and how that fits into incentive models. And the quote is, Web3 moves beyond the like and share primitives of social to include a third and more powerful gesture, collect. And I think it's really interesting how the economics of liking and sharing are different from those of collecting. Yeah, definitely. And then you also get this interesting market dynamic where you get to price it a little bit differently. So if you sell something at 0.1 ETH and then it ends up selling for 3 ETH on the secondary market, that will give you feedback on like how to price your work in the future where maybe you don't get that on subscription models or something. 
it's almost like an instant piece of feedback that lets different pieces of contents have variable levels of value. If you were using Substack, let's say, each piece of content would be treated unanimously because you're charging five bucks a month for everything that you create. It's almost like a standardized price. You know, in traditional literature, if you have a first edition of something, if you have a first edition of Harry Potter or something, it's worth quite a lot. And what you're saying is that in the traditional like online media, everything is super commoditized. Like the best article is worth the same as the cheapest article in some ways. But that wasn't true before the internet. I think the underlying problem seems to be the incentive model itself. Platforms like Substack, by encouraging subscription models, are commoditizing your content at a pretty uniform level. The value of any content that you're producing is no longer going to be dynamic. I think what Mirror sort of opens up is you get to create a different market for each article that you're writing. And some markets might be more valuable, some markets might be less valuable, but that way you get to sort of play around and get feedback on what people actually want and what people don't, which is a bit more difficult, I think, in traditional companies. For sure. And then people don't actually have to price everything. I think that's something where there's been a little bit of confusion with our launch because we set this default at 0.01 ETH or something per article. But I think, especially when L2s become even cheaper, once sharding is implemented on the L1s and et cetera, it should be almost free to mint something. I think it's going to be very cheap. And the writers don't need to set a price. They don't need to set like $100 to collect an article. It can be free. And in that world, it looks very similar to the like of traditional uh, Web2 platforms, where you're liking something on Twitter and you maybe don't think about it that much. You're just saying, oh, it's really cool. I like this article. And I wish I had some stronger bond with this person, or I wish that people could see that I like this. Those are like the reasons why you would like something. I don't think people are explicitly thinking, I really want to like this so that I can teach the AI algorithm how to sort my feed. Maybe some people <laughs> think that. But I think in most cases, people are just liking something because they want to experience a connection with the creator. And I think that collecting NFTs will be similar where it can potentially be free or priced at a small amount. And that's like this micro-tipping idea that people wanted to have in the early internet. And I know that there's like counter-argument about something to do with the cognitive overhead is like too much to make micro-tipping work. But I think collecting NFTs is the way to do it. And we can start with simple things like writing. I always want to start with like really simple examples. When I started in DeFi, like I just wanted to do a lending and borrowing protocol that was like really simple. And now in like this NFT space, I think just like collecting pieces of writing is a really good place to start and just see how it works. And let's just experiment. Let's see what this relationship looks like with collectors and creators and, and how that sort of modulates the economics of the internet, hopefully in a positive direction, because it's quite bad right now. When people are collecting, I'm sure there's some inherent need or desire that people have to show the pieces of writing that they're collecting. How does Mirror replicate that intrinsic need that people have to show what they're collecting to other people? Mm. One of the important things about NFTs is that they are available outside of the platform where you collect them. And so if you collect something on Foundation, you can display it in your Rainbow Wallet or you can display it on gallery.sur wherever you have your, your address. And it doesn't have to be the place where you store your private key. It can just be any gallery. So the onus is not necessarily on Mirror to show the collection, although we will have that. And we'll build all nice tools, something like, like Pinterest does, where you can group things and show people like your collections and your playlists and all of that stuff. But ultimately, what's really cool about NFTs is that people can build these as separate spaces online and in VR as well. And I think that, that will be very cool to see. 
what you're thinking of Mirrodan is more of a marketplace right now. And its focus right now is on matching people who want to collect good piece of writing to people who actually can produce good piece of writing. At the moment, it's very much focused on the creation process. So there's an editor where you can go and type things into a text box and then you can sign it with your private key and then mint it as an NFT. So yes, it's very much that early part of the cycle where somebody's creating something, they're minting it, and then people are finding it and then collecting it. So that's what we're practicing at the moment. Can we get product market fit? Can we get this new behavior just working in the market where people come and use this product to create things and mint them and collect them? Beyond that, we'll continue to build things and we'll support people in terms of like how they want to display their collections on Mira through a profile. We'll explore all of those things and try to figure it out in the next couple of months. Given finite bandwidth, I'm sure you often have to choose between features that writers want on the product versus features that readers want, like liking and commenting, for example. So how do you protest between the needs of the two sides? And has this prioritization changed within the past year and a half? Yeah. In Mara's history, also, we did a lot of other things. One thing we experimented were, was with mincing an essay as an NFT, but actually crowdfunding the production of the essay before. There is this essay that John Palmer wrote called Scissor Labels, and he minted that as an NFT with the ticker essay. But before writing it, he actually did a crowdfund on Mira for funding the production of that essay. So investors would come and they heard the story of what he wanted to write. And then they pooled money into the smart contract that was the Mira crowdfunding contract. And then he was able to take those funds and use it to fund writing the essay, which took some time. And then he sold the essay as an NFT for like, I don't know, a couple of ETH. And then the ETH went back into the crowdfund. And then the original investors were able to redeem the underlying ETH in the crowdfund by basically exchanging this token that they had received for backing the crowdfund. And then they could get their funds back with some profit from the sale. So that was crowdfunding on Mira. Like we started with this idea of being able to like fund writing with crowdfunds and then have them sell as NFTs and then investors could get their money back. And then we decided that the crowdfunding contract was actually quite valuable and people had not really done crowdfunding well in Web3 yet. And so we had this idea of doing embeddable crowdfunds. And there've actually been quite a lot of projects that have started as mirror crowdfunds. For example, there are like documentaries about Ethereum that have raised like three and a half million dollars as mirror crowdfunds. Somebody went to, uh, Dow wanted to buy a basketball team and they raised like a couple million dollars, I think, through mirror crowdfunds. So for a long time, we were actually iterating on this concept of crowdfunding for various cases and having crowdfunds be embedded into blog posts. And so there's actually been a competing prioritization between these web three blocks that you can embed into Mirror posts. And you can think of those as plugins with a core writer experience. And that's something that we've resolved this year. We really want to focus on the writing experience, the writing and collection of NFTs. And we've deprioritized these plugins like crowdfunds and editions and these other things that you might've seen in the plugins tab of the dashboard. If people are able to crowdfund entire documentaries on Mirror, to me, it almost seems like there is a huge demand in the market for an entire ecosystem or tool by itself just for financing creative projects through Web3. Have you ever thought about launching a spinoff from this plugin? <laughs> yes, we thought about that quite a lot because it's quite an independent battle to build a product like that. There's a lot of 
regulatory requirements, I think that you would need to pull something like that off unless it's fully decentralized. And there are projects like Syndicate DAO that are doing that. And then there are more decentralized ones like Juicebox. And so Mira had a, had a very good crowdfunding contract and people were using it and it worked pretty well. And I think it was safe to use, which is quite a lot to say. I think in, in space, if you have something that works and it's safe to use, that's usually quite a good sign. But I think it's not something that we want to focus on as a company. We just are more passionate about the writing use case. A lot of the people in the company come from places that have done writing projects. And so that's just where a lot of like our passion and energy wants to go. And I still think that there's like a lot of opportunity for that and maybe in the future like Mira will have more robust plugins and we'll add things like that back in but for the time being it's going to be focused on writing and the writer and where do you see Mira going in terms of this prioritization are you still going to be focusing on writing experience as much now that we're focusing more on the writing experience we really want to polish things up and so a lot of the prioritization is just to make things more robust make things more scalable. We just want to make that really robust so that writers can just feel like this is something that is a viable alternative to a platform like Substack. If you're in the Web3 space and you want to use an Ethereum address to sign your posts, it needs to be a credible alternative to like Medium or Substack or something. It can't be the Web3 jank version. <laughs> it's got to be like high quality. So we want to make it polished. We want, we want to make it a really pleasant experience. And so all of our attention is going to that. To sort of push on the other perspective, which is the reading experience itself. I have a quote from an article you wrote a while back that says, liking is definitely not as cool as commenting. And I think liking might actually have been bad for the internet in general because it perpetuates status anxiety. I think vanity metrics are overrated. How would Mirror approach any kind of interaction with content on the platform without creating vanity metrics like the number of collectors or the number of likes or the number of comments? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for reminding me about that. The problem with Web2 like liking in particular is there was no monetization model for it. So you just had everyone online posting things to get likes. And I don't think it bred a lot of quality. I think in a lot of cases, it just bred things that made people sort of outraged or it just, it sparked emotions. And then that's like the resharing in particular. So there's this great article by Jonathan Hay in, I think the Atlantic called why the last decade was so dumb in America or something. And so he talks about what is the reason why people retweet things and like reshare them. And the reason why is because they're generally like outraged about a topic. It's created negative emotion or it's, it's just fake information. I mean, fake information, it spreads way faster than truth on the internet. Right. So that's where a lot of liking and resharing comes from. It comes from mistruths or things that are just emotional content. And it's not necessarily stuff that people feel like that they would want to own. So I think that collecting might be different in that sense. Like it has a sort of different feel to it that we're going to see play out on the internet. And I'm not sure what it is yet, but I think that it's probably something where the quality of the content is higher. And so people don't have to be this like content machines for advertising because they're actually monetizing the content itself. So the content is the good. And that's not true of tweets, for example, or of Facebook posts or something. I think that's like a dynamic that will be different in Web3 and looking forward to seeing how that works. Are you worried that the pricing of any piece of art on Web3 might in itself create a vanity metric where people are using the value of a piece of art as a status signal? Yeah, it seems quite likely <laughs> that that will happen. 
And it's very early to have an opinion on whether that is good or bad. The over-financialization of media, there might be some early indications of that. I think we just need to be thoughtful. And then hopefully we're writing about it a lot and we're talking about it in these like public discussions. And we can sort of try to steer clear of any like really bad outcomes. But it does seem that some of that is going to happen. Sure. I have one last question for you. If you had to give any piece of advice or share any kind of resource with Gen Zers interested in Web3, what would it be? Do you remember A16Z did this, that's A16Z Crypto has this YouTube channel, I think, from about a year or two ago. And they just invited all of the people. The Crypto Startup School. Crypto Startup School. I think that would probably be a really good place to start. They interviewed like all of the sort of OG people in that course. So I would probably start there. I also think that this is a space in particular where people are very receptive to conversation. So reaching out to people that you want to talk to and just like having a conversation with them, I think is very easy to do in this space. And it has been the whole time that I've been part of it. I've always been able to reach out to people on Twitter and just have a conversation, get their feedback on things that I've been thinking about or set of calls. And I think it's still true today. So I would encourage anyone just to reach out to people they find interesting or want to learn more from. Awesome. Thanks so much, Graham. It's been lovely having you. If you enjoyed this episode, you can actually collect our conversation as an NFT by going to mirror.xyz slash web3genz.eat. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next week with another guest.